0: It's good to see you all in a beautiful fall autumn morning in Louisville. The sun shining, and uh, it's a reminder to us that uh, everything's changing fast, and uh, we are all about to head into the vortex of a holiday schedule and all the rest that kind of changes reality for a bit. So, as we are here together this morning, we're going to be turning to Colossians. And uh, we're going to conclude through the end of the chapter. So we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 4 together this morning. And as we begin, let us uh, begin in prayer. Father, we just come before you in thankfulness that you've given us such a day, that you have given us this day, the Lord's day, in which we gather together. Father, we pray that we will gather together to the the mutual edification of all the believers in this room, to the uh, further instruction... Of disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ and for your greater glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we are coming to the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians, and it's timely for us to remind ourselves that it's generally believed that this letter was written about the year AD 62. And the conditions under which the letter was written is that the Apostle Paul is in prison. And uh, it is certainly believed that this is his major imprisonment, the one in Rome. He is not the only believer who is imprisoned, as we shall see. But as he faces what is eventually going to be his trial, and as we know, it is believed his execution, he is writing letters to the churches. There is evidence within the letters that they are, at times, circular letters. They are sent to a congregation such as Colossae, and then they are to be sent to the other churches to be read. There are instructions given here even in the passage we will see. Paul is not alone, as I said. He has fellow prisoners who are brothers, one in particular. And he also has others who are a part of his apostolic team who evidently are not under arrest but are able to visit with him in prison and have conversation with him. And some are able to take the letter, at least to the first church. But as we shall see, there's evidence that the letter was actually run from church to church by a member of Paul's apostolic party in a very personal apostolic ministry. As we saw last time, the beginning of chapter four belongs to the pericope of chapter three. So in this case, we are picking up, even as we concluded the last time, we're picking up this time at two rather than one. Paul writes, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So as is so often the case, Paul comes to the end of the letter, and there are practical issues that he wants to discuss. Now, this makes it kind of interesting because some of those practical issues would relate to one congregation rather than to the other, and there's internal evidence in the New Testament that even as the letters were shared with other churches, the specific pastoral or practical applications of one church, even with names, might be mentioned. The other churches would simply understand there's There are portions that were directed especially to this situation, such as in Philippi, as with the letter with the Philippians, and uh, there are situations related to Colossae. But in this case, most of his closing apostolic exhortations are quite general for all Christians everywhere under every condition. He says, "...continue steadfastly in prayer." So one of the interesting things is that the Apostle Paul is clear that one of the things that the brothers, sisters could do for him in prison was to pray for him. Paul's absolutely certain that that is a godly thing that also is a gift to him. Paul's theology of prayer is very clear. It's built upon the Jewish understanding of prayer. The revelation of Christ did not bring a new form of prayer. It brought a new way of understanding how we address God when we pray. And a new intimacy. The Lord's Prayer is the greatest example of this. Where Jesus, the Son, tells us that we are to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So Israel would have referred to God as Father in a sense... And would certainly have called for the hallowing or the holifying of God's name. But for the intimacy of the Christian believer by Christ, we are invited to pray our Father who is in heaven. And then to make personal supplications and all that follows in the Lord's Prayer. The Apostle Paul, building upon what we would conceive as a New Testament understanding of prayer goes on to make very clear that we are to pray for the saints. That's one of the big issues in the Apostle Paul. That's an emphasis in prayer that certainly uh, is applicable to our situation. We're to pray for one another. And even as it's modeled here on Sunday morning, churches are to pray for other churches. This is very, very much a Pauline theme. Continue steadfastly. We understand that. Stand fast in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. In Mark chapter 14 and verse 38, um, Jesus tells his disciples to watch and pray. Now that's interesting because we know what the watches were. And and this has to do with guarding a city or guarding a house, the first watch, the second watch. It's a a three-hour cycle throughout the day. These watches are, you could picture it now kind of as a the police driving by at a certain hour, a security guard making rounds. The, uh, the watch was uh, often, in a military context, an assignment of soldiers, and there would be those who would be assigned. This watch, the other watch, they would relieve one another. This watch giving way to the, the corps that will, or the soldier that will keep the next watch. Being watchful... Seems to be more than anything else an emphasis upon active consciousness. We're alert. Prayer is not mentally neutral, it is mentally engaged. Being watchful means that we are to be as persistent in prayer as the watchman is persistent through the night. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful and and with thanksgiving. So this is very much like the Apostle Paul telling us, uh, make our supplications with praise and thanksgiving. And then there's the prayer for the brethren in verse 3. At the same time, pray also for us. That means presumably not just Paul and Paul's apostolic party, but in particular, those who are in prison. And it's an interesting prayer. Pray for us also that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ so you think of all the things that someone in prison with a life and death question hanging in the balance, You can think of all kinds of things Paul might ask to be prayed for. But what he asks for is the intercessory prayer of believers to pray that there will be an opening for the preaching of the gospel there in the prison. The Apostle Paul cannot go to Mars Hill as in Athens. He can't go to the churches as was his first his first strategy, he can't preach in public, he's in prison. Of course, one of the realities that we see, both in the Old Testament and in the New, is that one of the strange situations about being in prison is that people are assigned to watch you. The Apostle Paul is asking these believers to pray there there will be an opening for the gospel. Certainly that must mean beyond the prison, but it's also clear that Paul even means that within the prison, that God may open to us a door for the Word. I often thought that'd be a great book title, A Door for the Word, because we we can picture it. It's it's an opening for the Word. And the Word, this is an interesting thing, the Word will sneak in the door. The Word will bust down the door. But what Paul asks for is the believers to pray that there will be an opening in the door, a door for the gospel. It's interesting that Paul doesn't pray for himself. He doesn't pray for his personal safety. He doesn't pray for his security. He doesn't pray for better conditions. He prays for an opening for the gospel. But what about this gospel? Notice what Paul says. To declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Now, this is where we remember where we began in the book of Colossians and back in Colossians chapter 1, where we have this magnificent passage from Paul about the mystery of the gospel. Verse 27, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul said, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. The thing to remember at that point is not just the emphasis upon the mystery, the gospel is mystery, but the fact that the Apostle Paul says, For this I toil. This is my constant toil. Where is he? He's in prison. Even in prison, the Apostle Paul was seeking to uh, exercise every opportunity for the preaching of the gospel he still considered himself an apostle deployed at this point in a Roman prison. He was determined to make the most of it. The reference to the gospel as mystery is one of the most important issues considering the context of early Christianity in the Greco-Roman world. Because the Greco-Roman world was filled with mystery cults. But mystery cults work the opposite way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mystery cults are, uh, are like fraternal organizations or secret societies in which only those who are deemed worthy to be invited in have as a part of their acceptance once they are in the revelation of the mysteries is given. It's the opposite of Christianity. Christianity declares the mystery publicly. It is a publicly proclaimed ministry. He, meaning Christ, we proclaim. The mystery is Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's not a secret. It is a mystery. Christianity is not a mystery cult. We, we, we don't d- decide if people are worthy to be a part of Third Avenue Baptist Church based upon non-gospel characteristics, and that might be intelligence. It might be attractiveness. It might be social connections. It might be certainly wealth if you're a secret society. You probably want the wealthier people. You, you, you want the powerful. And, and if you deem them worthy, then once they come in, they are initiated into the mysteries. Now, the Apostle Paul even uses that kind of language about what it means to be a Christian. As we, as we, we, but it's, it's a public truth. It's not a secret. It's declared to the entire world. Paul said, I'm under compulsion to preach the gospel And so Paul went to Mars Hill. He didn't say, hey, you know, we've got this fantastic secret society. He proclaimed Christ. And and so Paul's using the word mystery here to the first century person in the Greco-Roman Empire, and certainly here at Rome at his height. There would be an immediate understanding of what Paul's doing. Paul's saying it's a mystery, but it's a mystery not that we conceal. It's not a a mystery we whisper. It's a mystery we shout. We shout. It's a, a mystery we preach. It's also a mystery that gets Paul in jail. You'll notice the directness of verse three, on account of which I am in prison. So just in case you wonder why I'm in prison, it's not for kiting checks. It's uh, it's not for failing to pay my debts. I'm in prison on account of the gospel. This, too, is something really, really important to us. The gospel is going to cost us something. And every generation, the gospel, the preaching of the gospel will cost cost us something. Um, I was just in Chicago Friday and Saturday, spoke at an event for... Christians. It was a, an event sponsored by First Things magazine. And the big issue was Christian faithfulness in an aggressively post-Christian age. So there we were in Chicago, and a lot of pretty active Christians in the intellectual world were gathered there. And we were trying to think soberly about, and, and, and out loud, frankly, in front of each other about what faithfulness to Christ is likely to look like just in years to come. Now, I'm concerned about that because I'm a Christian. I'm concerned about that uh, because of my love for the church. I'm concerned about that for my love for Christ's people. I'm concerned about that because I have grandchildren. Mary and I think differently because of those grandchildren. And that's something very biblical This is Abrahamic. Your horizon gets extended considerably. But you know, I don't know how far my horizon has to be extended before I would see Christians in this society having to pay a very expensive price for Christian faithfulness. I don't think it's going to wait on, you know, eight, five, and two-year-olds to grow up, I think we're already seeing where a stand for Christian faithfulness can cost you a very great deal. One of the things I talked about on the briefing two years ago was the fact that Canadian medical schools were moving towards an admissions policy that would require students to pledge to perform abortions before they would be accepted into Medical school. The argument was economic. It, it, it does not serve us economically. It's not, it's not a good investment to invest in a medical student who is not going to perform the full array of what they define as medical services. It was in one province in Canada where this was being tried out, but Canada's largest province in Ontario. And you look at that and you realize well, at some point, at some point, Can Christians become doctors if they have to absolutely violate one of the first statements of Christianity in the first century after the scripture, the Didache, that you can't perform an abortion? Well, what does it look like if our children can't become doctors? Now, it's not exactly like being in prison, but it's a different situation than comfortable middle-class Christians have known in this country. The same thing's true in many employment and other academic and government situations where the trigger is going to be positive affirmation. Now, I know that sounds like redundancy. but There's no such thing as negative affirmation. But the reason it's necessary is because it's not just affirmation. It's, it's, it has to be a positive action. That's what's triggering right now. A lot of situations in corporate America, in academic America... And uh, in institutional America, and it, it is, in other words, you have to positively affirm in a public way that you're buying into this agenda A, B, C, D, you name it. So you look at this coming and you recognize. You know this is not being in jail and, and, and so we're not we're not acting like it is there are brothers and sisters in Christ who are paying for their faithfulness for Christ right now by imprisonment and torture and worse we're not equating that but we are saying this is a significant shift towards a post-Christian culture and, and you know what it's not going to come without a cost the apostle Paul's cost is prison eventually faithfulness would cost him his life In verse 4, he says, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Just very simple, Paul, as if we were worried, Paul would not be direct. He makes it very clear that he is to be clear. In verse 5, you have instructions to all the believers, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Now, one of the interesting things about Scripture, and this is characteristic of the Apostle Paul, is that there is prudential wisdom mixed in with deep spiritual lessons. And, you know, we tend to think, well, that's a little weird, isn't it? It's sort of like my dad. I'm not saying my dad was the Apostle Paul, but my dad was my dad. It was like, when I was going off to college, he would just rattle off a few final instructions. And one of them was always, check the air in your tires. It was like, live to the glory of God. Be a good neighbor. Check the air in your tires. You know, be upright, be honest, be righteous. And check the air in your tires. Okay, well, that that wasn't unimportant. But I always thought, you know, that's just really interesting. It's like way up here and then way down there. But that's the way it is, isn't it? That's the way it is in marriage. I promise you. You know it's true. It's like there's these three or four giantly important things this magnificent things we have to discuss these giant challenges we have to face don't forget to pick up the prescription at the drugstore it's, it's just there the apostle Paul mixes the, the very lofty we're just talking about the mystery of the gospel of Christ and now we're right down to conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders making the best use of your time making the best use of your time This isn't time management. This is gospel perspective. You may not have much time. Let your speech, again, practical. Let your speech, your talk, your conversation always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Again, this is fascinating. It might be very relevant if you are chained to someone, though. Just saying. It might be that if your circle is all of a sudden small, you would understand how important it is to be able to read someone and figure out how to have a conversation with them. You know, this is a great Christian gift. It's a great Christian responsibility. It is to be able, for the cause of the gospel, to be able to size up how to have a conversation with someone. That's a conversational skill. And it used to be that children were taught how to have conversations. Many children these days aren't even taught how to have conversations. And guess what? They don't. Adolescents, pre adolescents, they tend to go into a shell. That's when you've got to make them learn how to have a, con- a conversation. My dad's way to do that was to put you in the car where the conversation might be with both of you staring out the windshield, but there would be a conversation. He would make me talk. Or we go on a walk and he would make me talk. When we were in the presence of other adults, My father made certain that I talked. I don't mean like the obnoxious talking kid. But in other words, when an adult asked a question, if I just said yes, sir, or no, sir, that was generally not enough. You know, follow that up. We need to teach disciples, followers of Christ, how to talk. We need to talk to one another. But we need to teach each other how we can read a person to know what kind of conversation we can have with them. So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Being gracious. Your, your language seasoned with salt. So it is interesting that there you have just a, a few verses. And certainly when you look at the passage, this verse 2 through verse 6. You know, there you just have a few Verses of general exhortation, but they're very important. And for a man in prison who knows that any day could basically trigger the process that would bring the end of his life, when he's writing these letters as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, it just gives particular weight to these kinds of instructions. Evidently, this is so important that if this is one of the last things Paul says, this will be one of the last things Paul says. you might think that passage would be longer. In others of Paul's letters, this passage, this this kind of exhortation would be a lot longer. It's just not here. Instead, what's longer than usual here are Paul's personal references. Now, there are personal references towards the conclusion, often at the beginning of other letters. There are some here in the beginning of this letter, as we saw. There are just a lot, an unusual number here at the end of the, the letter to the church at Colossae. Now, you look at that and you say, well, that, that's, that was just for them. You know, that must have been interesting for them. But the Holy Spirit intended that we would have this and that we would be edified by it and encouraged by it. So we better look to it. Chapter 4, verse 7, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. We know of Tychicus from Acts 20 and Ephesians 6. Is a part of Paul's apostolic band. Evidently, very, very useful to him. That's a good thing to know. And, And here, evidently, Tychicus is one who is taking this gospel to Colossae. And, you know, Tychicus is going to tell them things as a beloved brother that aren't in the letter. Okay, so that's something else that's interesting, isn't it? So, let's say, and you may have seen the news story this week. That uh, French authorities, uh, a French scholar in particular, with government permission, has revealed the fact that they have found a missing mail pouch carrying hundreds of letters from the Seven Years' War. Okay, so like 200 years. They are largely letters from wives to husbands who were at war, and from husbands to wives back at home. They never got them. For one thing, the British in the Seven Years' War, and remember that's going on at the same time as the American Revolution. So the American Revolution is what we call the war here with the British Empire. The British Empire was at war with France… And they call it there the Seven Years' War. Britain took 63,000 prisoners of war from naval vessels alone. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't even seem possible, but they did. And uh, so the mail was on the ships. And and what happened when when a maritime power conquered a ship of another maritime power, they generally didn't put the ship in dock. They changed the flags on it. sent it right back to war and that was our ship buddy so the Monique becomes the Elizabeth and they send it right back so what do they do with the letters what do they do with the mail they throw it in the trash they use it for kindling evidently this bag was just you know put aside and it was found okay so here's the interesting thing the New York Times had great coverage on it yesterday it's not now a problem of reading the French language. The French language is clear enough from the 18th century to the present. We, that's not the problem in understanding. The problem is you don't have the letter before. Isn't that interesting? So you just don't have the letter before. It's uh, It's heartbreaking. The people who've been reading these letters, they realize just how heartbreaking they are. Some of you may remember Ken Burns' series, The Civil War. It was, uh, at one point, one of the most influential PBS presentations that had ever been made. I realize it kind of dates us to talk about it. But the uh, innovation in Ken Burns' The Civil War, if you haven't seen it, I would suggest it. I'm sure it's available somewhere, PBS is that in the beginning of the uh, episode and generally at the end, he would read letters, the narrator would read letters from the soldiers on either side of the war sent home to their wives. And there were, there were amazing letters, like one from Oliver Wendell Holmes, who uh, would use this incredible language, to his loved ones, to express the horror of the war. These letters are very powerful, and, 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 and the, the, the letters even now are moving. You, you look at these letters, this cache of letters from the Seven Years' War, and you realize these are real human beings. And, but the problem is you don't know the letter before, so it's just very hard to follow. It's heartbreaking when you see some of the things that were sent. First of all, affirmations of love from the, the men to wives at home. They never got them instructions for children they never got them but the letters going the other way that were in the same pouch included such things as your mother has died things like this and they were never received the church of Colossae received this letter from Paul and they did know something before and they would know something after This is the process of Paul's apostolic leadership over the church. Tychicus is taking the letter. He's described as faithful brother and faithful minister and faithful servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So Tychicus is being sent in person. The letter's not going alone. The letter's not coming, you know, by anonymous carrier because Paul is not just sending a letter he's sending Tychicus. Now one of the interesting things about those letters that were found is, is that you look at them and you say we need more data to understand this letter. We do. We just you, you pick up this letter from a wife to a sailor in the French Navy or from the sailor to his wife, you, you, we just don't know enough. Well, you know, it's really interesting that the apostle Paul sends Tychicus with the letter to explain more. That's really helpful. And Paul tells us that right here. He tells the church, you're going to expect to hear more from Tychicus. He's going to tell you some details about how I am. He's going to tell you more about what it means for us to be in this prison. Okay, here's what we need to know. The church at Colossae needed to know that. We don't. The perfection of Scripture means we have everything we need. We don't have anything we don't need. That's just helpful for us to know. And that's going to come up in a big way in just a few minutes. But it's not just Tychicus. It's also Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Now, remember, Onesimus has already come up. Onesimus is the the bond servant, the slave, who is with Paul. The first thing we need to notice is how every time he mentions Onesimus, he mentions him as our brother in Christ. That's how he is identified Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, Onesimus and Tychicus will tell them everything they need to know. Now remember, that in this same cycle of letters is the letter to Philemon, to whom Onesimus is bond servant. So that also comes into play in just a moment. Then verse 10, Aristarchus, very well-known Greek name, my fellow prisoner greets you And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Well, first Aristarchus. So Aristarchus uh, greets you. Well, Aristarchus is part of Paul's party, and he is uh, imprisoned with him. So we don't know much more about Aristarchus, but we do know that even previously he's been disclosed as part of Paul's party And he's in prison with him. So that gets it back to the fact that part of Paul's party is in prison with him. Part is not. So interesting situation. You'll notice that also mentioned here is Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Wow. A bomb just went off. You didn't sense it. But it's there. And and by the way, it's subtle and it's weird. Okay, so I'll just say it's it's unusual. Who is Mark, the brother of Barnabas? This is John Mark. Remember John Mark, who Paul said had betrayed him, had let him down, and was no longer traveling with him earlier in his series of letters? Now, John Mark is back. He's evidently been restored. The friendship, the partnership in the gospel has been restored. Uh, Just putting all this together in terms of our best understanding, uh, John Mark had failed Paul, and uh, and they, they, they didn't walk together, but now John Mark is back with Paul, and not only that, Paul is describing him in very positive language as he says, concerning whom you've received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. Welcome him if he comes to you. So, it's likely that John Mark was headed there, and the Apostle Paul is giving him the thumbs up. But he doesn't call him John Mark. Is Mark the brother of Barnabas. What, what do we read into that? Don't read anything into that, I, I, other than the Apostle Paul calls him the name differently. But we know it's the same man. Peter's just refers, refers to him differently. Is it because he said such hard things about John Mark elsewhere? I don't know. But it is interesting. And here he shows up this way. And then Jesus, who's called justice in verse 11. And, and, and so this is a singular mention. Um, and again, it tells us something about the name Jesus being more common than you might think. He's referred to as justice probably precisely because of the avoidance of confusion. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they've been a comfort to me. So referring to Jewish believers with him, these are the only Jewish believers with him. And remember, he's in Rome, the the head of the Gentile empire, and, and he does have these members of these brothers of the circumcision who are among his fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So here again, it's interesting to know that in this apostolic party or company with the Apostle Paul, there are both Jews and Gentiles, just the very picture of the gospel that he has hoped to to demonstrate, and it's demonstrated even as he is in prison. But in this case, there are just a few of the men of the circumcision among his fellow workers. They're workers for the kingdom of God. They've been a comfort to Paul. In verse 12, Paul mentions Epaphras, and uh, even as we have Epaphras here, we recognize the name, and Epaphras, who is one of them, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that he may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So Epaphras is with Paul, and he's a servant of Jesus Christ, mentioned here again, and, and something interesting is told about him, he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayer. So even as Paul called them to be watchful and alert in prayer, he's telling them, you know, in this case, there's someone praying for you. And that's Epaphras, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. And the specific prayer is that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So Epaphras is in Paul's company there in Rome And presumably, it it points there with him in prison, although it appears to be visiting him in prison. And as he is doing so, he is praying very much for the church in Colossae to say mature, fully assured in all the will of God. And then in verse thirteen, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. We don't know exactly what that means, but Epaphras has been working on their behalf. And, of course, it's interesting when you look at at Laodicea there, because Laodicea is going to show up in the book of Revelation in a big way. It becomes a a metaphor uh, in terms of the the sins and, and troubles of the Laodicean church. But at this point, it's a young church. Paul writes to them in this series, give my greetings to the brothers in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. So presumably that means in Laodicea is the sister named Nympha and the church is meeting in her house. And then verse 16, about the letter being read, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see to it you read the letter from Laodicea. Okay, so this is interesting because, wow, we have these letters. How many letters do we have for the Apostle Paul? Exactly how many the Holy Spirit wanted us to have. How many do you write? Evidently many more. It's often referred to, just, and I, you know, you have to make reference to this. Usually, as you're preaching in the Corinthian correspondence, that we have two letters addressed to the church at Corinth, but Paul clearly wrote four. Because in the first letter, he mentions the previous letter. We don't have that letter. In what we call Second Corinthians, he mentions another letter. We don't have that letter either. He calls that one the hard letter. Ouch. Evidently, the Holy Spirit didn't give us that one. But we know Paul wrote other letters, and and this is just what's important to us, is to realize that a part of the perfection of Scripture, a part of the sufficiency of Scripture, in the canon of Scripture, or the set of the books of Scripture, is we have exactly what we need. We don't have one book more. We don't have one book less. The same Holy Spirit who inspired the writings of Scripture determined the books of Scripture, which ones would be recognized And so here's a reference to a a letter to Laodicea. We don't have it. Of course, that would be perhaps a little difficult, speaking practically, given the troubles in Laodicea that will come up in the book of Revelation and the letters to the seven churches. We we don't have the letter addressed to them. But the, the Corinthians are told, excuse me, in this case, the Colossians are told that they are to have it read aloud in their church. See that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So this is something else just important. You knew this already, but it's really interesting to come to the end of the letter and realize that it was to be read aloud. Okay, why is that so? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, it's an event. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul. But there's something else, and it comes up in those letters from the Seven Years' War. These are letters from people Two people, two loved ones. And one of the interesting things made by notes made by the historian was a lot of these would have been dictated. Literacy rates were so low that in communities there were letter writers who wrote letters for others because they couldn't read or write. One of the interesting things about literacy in first century. Rome and the Roman Empire is that literacy rates were very high among an elite and extremely low to non existent outside that elite. If you were a boy raised in a noble house, you would receive a great deal of education. If you were any other child, practically none. And parents can't teach children to read if the parents can't read. And going even into the 18th century, into the time of the Seven Years' War, is this an interesting point. And if you don't have that made, it's, it's sometimes one you can kind of skip over in your mind. An awful lot of these letters would have been incomprehensible in the print to those who were sending them because they had to have someone else write it for them. Then on the other end, they'd have to have someone else read it for them. Well, in the first century, there would be those who could read and those who couldn't. Literacy becomes a Christian priority because of the inscripturated revelation that is so central to our life and faithfulness, the preaching of the Word, the reading of the Word. And so where you find Christianity, you find a burgeoning literacy, Uh, the catechetical schools of early Christianity teaching the catechism also became literacy schools. And it wasn't just for children. The catechumen were often adults. And one of the things the adults were taught was just rudimentary how how to read in order to read the Scripture. Primarily, the catechetical schools were about teaching the catechesis, the content of the faith. But they expanded into literacy because after after all, you have to have a lot of people who can write and a lot of people who can read in order to have a literate church And, and, and a reading church, a church that would be established in Scripture. The Apostle Paul wants these letters read aloud. They were rhetorical events. The church would gather and the letter would be read and it would be as if Paul is speaking. That's a small little microcosm. In the macrocosm, that's what happens in preaching. God speaks to us by revealed words and as they are read before Christ's people and as they are preached to Christ's people in a way that is true of every word of Scripture... The Holy Spirit applies the word internally to the hearts of believers, conforming us to the image of Christ. The church would have been edified and sanctified, and God would have been glorified as these letters were read aloud, not because they're just a letter from someone afar who's a brother in prison, but because they are from Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are not just letters. These are apostolic letters. This letter to Colossae is an apostolic letter. Letter. It is scripture. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you read the letter from Laodicea. Look at verse 17. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Okay. Say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received. In the Lord. That, that, that appears to be a word of active encouragement. In other words, this doesn't look like a word of correction, it, it looks like a word of affirmation. Uh, it, it may be that uh, Archippus is the son of Philemon. There's some historical records that would seem that that might be possible. It doesn't matter to us. This is a young man who's received a calling from the Lord, an assignment. And the Apostle Paul says, you encourage him to fulfill that assignment. That's a good Christian responsibility, a congregational responsibility. When someone has a gift and a call from the Lord, an assignment, you encourage him to fulfill the ministry received from the Lord. In verse 18, Paul continues, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. There's a sense of gravity here, isn't there? I mean, this is the Apostle Paul. He says, Look, this is my own hand. It's not just my own words, this is, this is my own hand. You know, elsewhere, Paul will point to his handwriting in his big letters as evidence of his bad eyesight. And uh, so he, he, he writes with big letters because he, he wants to see them. That his big letters is in ABC as he's writing letters. He wants this letter to be received with people knowing that it has been written in his hand. Or at the very least what he says here, that uh, he wrote this greeting with his own hand. That that means at least presumably he may have had some help in terms of the actual manuscripting of part of the letter. But this is so personal. Paul wants us uh, to know he has written this with his own hand. You know... uh, one of the sweet things about having grandchildren is uh, they send you notes and cards. Really little people, in really little hands, and you know uh, I can't throw any of them away. It's just the way it is. I just have a drawer. I throw them in. And uh, so I have cards, and they're like greeting cards, like happy birthday or something similar, and there's this mess at the bottom of the card with a crayon or something. It is just a little hand doing something. And then there'll be Benjamin, put in parentheses. I'm glad to say Benjamin at eight can do a little better than that now. But at some point, it was just a mark. And then a sweet parent just writing in, this is by this child. It means the world to get that. It means the world to get that. But, you know, it means the world to get that when even in giant letters, you know, a B three inches tall, <laughs> little E, and you can see here's the, here's the handwriting, and you can see the little face, you know, sitting at a table with the crayon in the hand, just face right down on the card, writing this with a fist. I think the church at Colossae could very well have pictured the Apostle Paul in a prison cell, bent over a table with his poor eyesight, writing with his own hand these final words of this letter. That would have to mean something, wouldn't it? Can you imagine, just, you're, you're holding your hand and, and you're reading aloud what's coming as a message from the Apostle Paul, an apostolic letter from the Apostle Paul, and you get to the end and he says, look, I, I have put myself in this letter in such a way this greeting is in my hand. The Apostle Paul says three things here I write this with my own hand. Secondly, remember my chains. Well, I mean, how can we forget, right? How how can we forget that the Apostle Paul is in prison? How can we forget that the chains are on him? We can't forget that. Paul doesn't want us to forget that. He's not imprisoned as an accident. He's imprisoned for the cause of the gospel. He's imprisoned because of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, He's imprisoned because of his preaching of the word. Remember my chains. It's just a sobering affirmation. And then his typical final conclusion. It's either grace and peace. In this case, grace be with you. God's grace be with you. It was read aloud that way, wherever it was read. And we know that it was read not only in Colossae, but the letter was sent to other letters, to other churches in other cities, even as letters to those churches were read in Colossae. It's being read right now in the year 2023 by believers in Louisville, Kentucky. And the Apostle Paul, we hear him say to the church in Colossae, grace be with you. And as we conclude this letter, as the time is concluding for the morning, and as we conclude our study of Colossians, excuse me. We realize this is addressed to us. And the Apostle Paul says to us, Grace be with you. What a gift. He said it to us. The church in Louisville with the name Third Avenue that's on Third Street. He said it to us. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for giving us this letter. Thank you for inspiring the Apostle Paul to write it. Thank you for this band of disciples for taking it to Corinth. Thank you for allowing us to read it. Thank you for putting it in the Holy Scripture. Thank you for everything contained within it. May thereby we be more faithful and your name more glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.